You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santis Health. Hi, listeners. My name is Dan Carbon. I'm a principal here at Santis Health. Today, I'm joined by Deborah Simon, an advocate for home and community care, to discuss the impact that COVID-19 has had on the health human resource crisis in Ontario and what opportunities policymakers have as we move beyond the pandemic. Before we dive into anything, I want to introduce our guest. Deborah Simon has been the CEO of the Ontario Community Support Association since 2012. Her background includes extensive work in home and community care, as well as the broader health sector in acute long-term care and rehab. Deborah has worked in government with the Ministry of Health as the Provincial Nursing Coordinator. She's also participated in local health planning in the region of Durham, where she resides. Deborah is a registered nurse with a BA from York University and an MBA from Athabasca University. Hi, Deborah. Thanks very much for joining us today. Um, I hope you're. I hope you're doing well. Um, before we get rolling today, it, it'd be great for our listeners if you could introduce yourself, um, talk about what your association does, and what what your members do in the health system in Ontario. Sure. And uh, let me just start off by saying thanks, Dan, very much for the invitation to have this conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, the uh, the Ontario Community Support Association, uh, it's been around for about 35 years or so. Um, it is an organization that is uh, represents not-for-profit home and community care organizations across the province. And there's a little over 220 of those organizations that we uh, speak four um, across the province. Um, the sector itself is a really interesting one in that it's it's a pretty substantial sector. We, we serve about uh, three quarters of a million folks in, in our community support um, program and our home care program around similar numbers. Um, that, that includes programs like Meals on Wheels, uh, transportation, personal support, homemaking, the kinds of programs that would keep people independent and their own homes across the province. Um, some pretty impressive statistics around those the programs in terms of the delivery of services. Uh, and this is, of course, pre-pandemic, but uh, pre-pandemic, we were serving something like 3 million meals uh, to individuals. Um, we were providing just over a million hours of transportation. We were looking at three million plus hours of volunteer services. You know, all of this is to say that this is a substantial uh, organization and uh, sector that a lot of people just don't know a lot about. And but they do really important work um, in in those communities for people in need. Can Can you tell us a little bit about? how the, the people you serve, uh, both, both your members and, and the individuals and their families who rely on, rely on these organizations have, have been impacted over the past 18 months. I mean, it's been pretty profound, I would imagine, in the, in the change in people's lives. They've been uh, asked or ordered to, to, stay, to stay home, not to go out to kind of group settings where they may have been able to interact with others. Uh, there's been a lot of nervousness and, and fear of, of, of people coming into uh, coming into homes, there's been fear about people going into um, congregate living settings and, and, and wanting to try and stay home independently as possible. How, how, how have things changed for, for your members and those they serve uh, over the course of the pand- pandemic? 
Yeah. Well, first, let me say it's been a pretty rough 20 months um, in healthcare as a whole, but uh, for sure in home and community care. Uh, when, when the pandemic started back in March of 2020, there was so much that was unknown, uh, the least of which uh, of how long this was going to last. And I think uh, initially everyone just hunkered down for what we thought would be a, a month or two, but it kept evolving. And here we are, you know, a year and a half later, uh, still in uh, just seeing the end of the last wave. But for home and community care, we started the pandemic in a position of a bit of instability when it came to our HHR. And, and by that, what I mean is that we were already challenged as a sector uh, with compensation issues. And of the three sectors of healthcare, acute care, which is mostly hospitals, long-term care, and home and community care, our compensation was already at the lowest. Uh, we had the lowest ratio of frontline positions in full and part-time positions. And, and we were further challenged by the nature of care in the community, some of which you've already spoken to. That is that we provide care in the home in the community and uh, in people's dwellings where they where they live every day. So this created a real challenge in terms of uh, trust and uh, concern around safety and and a, a whole um, a plethora of other related issues. Um, but but further to that, our home and community care programs are are really also substantiated with um, volunteers. So we use a lot of volunteers uh, to deliver uh, some of the services that we provide. And many of those programs uh, were dramatically uh, hit by the lack of volunteers because most of those volunteers themselves were in high-risk groups. They were seniors, helping seniors across the community. So uh, the cohort uh, really was uh, dramatically hit. And this all came together to form a bit of a perfect storm and severely impact our ability to continue services as they were prior to the pandemic. What what also I think contributed to this um, storm was during the pandemic in the earlier days of the pandemic when when the federal government came along and offered the uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit or CERB uh, within the uh, initial phases of the of the pandemic, and within weeks the home and community care sector lost about. 30% of our, our, our workforce, in some cases up to 50%. Particularly uh, the hardest hit groups would have been um, our frontline personal support workers and, and to some degree nursing. And, and as the pandemic progressed, uh, we had further significant constraints um, because in the interest of public health and public safety, uh, we needed to uh, keep workforces uh, const- uh, working in one sector, the one employer rule. Uh, So it limited workers to one sector of employment. So there was no surprise that most of our PSWs chose a sector that paid more and provided more guaranteed hours of work. So these all had a really significant um, impact uh, on our ability to deliver the services as we had previously delivered them. How are things uh, standing today? Has there been a has there been a rebound and a, re- a return of some of those staff, or or are you still significantly under capacity in terms of being where you'd want to be in terms of uh, frontline personal support workers, nurses, and other staff? Yeah, well, staff have been coming back, um, but really slowly, and um, I think you know 
knowing that there has been a dramatic impact on all of healthcare, certainly uh, our sector really felt a lot of it. Um, and, and, you know, morale amongst our, our frontline staff really suffered. There was a lot of mixed messages, particularly uh, for personal support workers. Uh, you know, on one hand, we were hearing public statements being made about this workforce being frontline heroes, and, and they were and are and continue to be. Throughout the pandemic, these PSWs worked to the best of their abilities to protect their clients. Um, on the other hand, um, the staff also faced a lot of hardship during the pandemic, um, getting adequate PPE, huge hesitancy, as you mentioned at the outset, from clients who were really reluctant to accept care because of their own worries about COVID, um, really inconsistent policy and approaches that really impacted how care was being delivered in the community. And so you add to that um, a wage enhancement that was offered by government, which was great, um, but temporary. And, um, and yet for a lot of these front, frontline staff, there was nothing temporary about the care that they were trying to provide. And so they, they were, you know, I think really caught in the middle of, of understanding that there was their, their role was really important, but, but also not feeling um, the recognition. So in terms of where we are today, um, we still are uh, one of the lower paid, lowest paid uh, sectors. And we're still, you know, awaiting confirmation that temporary wage increases are going to be made permanent. Um, and we're, st- we're sitting right now days away from that expiration and still with no news about what we can say to our frontline staff about that. So to, to answer the question, we're, we're trickling along. Um, we've, you know, morale has suffered. Um, frontline staff have suffered across the board, uh, working through all these challenges. Well, you, you referenced at the outset that this is this has obviously been a longstanding uh, problem for your sector. I, I remember reports from over a decade ago suggesting that the uh, the, the turnover in the personal support worker um, uh, group within the community sector exceeded forty uh, percent a year in many in many parts of the province. And you can you can completely understand from their perspective if they're working uh, at a, in a relatively low wage job with no guarantee of hours, no full time kind of role, and the pandemic comes along and questions about PPE availability and protocols and whether they're going to have enough uh, of of a shift to put food on the table, it seems a a pretty rational response from the perspective of those frontline providers to to take CERB and look for other other, uh, employment opportunities. And I guess the question is, are are we going to be able to change things to attract those people back or to attract new people in to to fill the gaps that you've talked about? Yeah, no, I, I and you're, you've actually nailed it. The, the goal, the, where we are in terms of going forward is, is really critical at this point, particularly for our sector. Um, and, uh, you know, we know that government is very fixated at this point around improvements to the healthcare system, particularly in long-term care. And, uh, you know, we're very supportive of all the changes that they need to, to make in order to be able to protect seniors and those who are most vulnerable. But that, you know, that said, um, home and community care, and particularly home care, uh, we share a really finite pool uh, of staff with long-term care. And there are many reasons for this, but one of the driving factors has been really the nature of work in home care um, and the funding models. And uh, personal care has historically had um, 
challenges in terms of the way of, of, of the operationalization of it. Um, it has high demand periods like mornings and evenings and to support clients um, to get up and to, to go to bed in the evening. So there's a gap in demand in the middle of the day. And, and so home care funding um, primarily um, has been on a fee-for-service basis and payment to staff has mirrored that. And, you know, you, you referenced and talked about the fact that, you know, full and part-time jobs are, are challenged in this sector. Um, PSWs who have been unable to get sufficient of hours of work have wanted to work in different settings. And so it has been a natural uh, movement between home and community care and long-term care. And particularly since the training for PSWs is, is similar for those two settings. Uh, and so we've, we've had this uh, push and pull between um, long-term care and home and community care for staff. But of course, an incentivized uh, recruitment for long-term care is going to have a, a really direct and detrimental impact on, on our workforce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to speak to the solutions, um, you know, moving forward and how, how we're going to be able to um, have uh, uh, robust staffing in our, in our sector is we really feel that the time is, is past due. Uh, to look at issues of wage parity, and it's it's really critical. It doesn't increase the healthcare pool, um, but it certainly ensures that people can work where they want to work and be equally compensated for the work that they that they do. Um, What's the gap today, uh, mm-hmm. Deborah, bet- between the uh, between what staff in your sector would get paid and what what they'd get paid uh, for comparable work in long term care or the acute sector? Yeah. So just an example of that is that uh, uh, nurses, for example, in home and community care are paid uh, a gap of about $11 an hour between uh, working in home care versus hospitals. And um, for personal support workers, uh, there is a 14, um, sorry, on average, a 19% um, differential between the pay that they receive in long-term care and in home and community care. So, so we have a, a, you know, a significant gap um, that, um, that parity um, can address and allow people to be able to be able to work in the sectors that they most want to, um, to migrate to. Minister uh, Phillips, the, the long-term care minister here in Ontario, uh, gave a speech on October 20th, uh, uh, talking about the, the government's plan to invest in long-term care staffing. Uh, he, he gave the figure out that the, the sector would need 27,000 additional full-time equivalents to increase the staffing ratio in existing homes and meet the needs of the new beds they're bringing online. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is that impact going to have when the government is so focused on, you know, and for a variety of incredibly valid reasons, yeah. increasing staffing in long-term care. But what is that kind of policy in isolation going to have on the broader home and community sector? Well, I, th- I think I've alluded to that, you know, um, in, in our discussion that uh, if you're already the lower paid um, sector, lowest paid sector, um, compensation is going to play a, a major role in this. Um, and the training, as I mentioned previously, um, is going to uh, mirror uh, for PSWs what is required in long-term care. So our sector is really going to be ripe for picking in terms of uh, PS- PSWs who might choose to work in a in sort of guaranteed environment, guaranteed pay environment, uh, full-time work, 
um, better compensation, all of those factors. Um, and so I think, you know, at the outset, what, what is worrisome about that approach is that uh, long-term care is a continuum. It, it's not only about facilities. And certainly in home and community care, we are serving a large component of our, of our um, client population um, who are long-term care. Um, we are supporting them to be able to uh, receive those services in, in their home because they have, um, cognitively, they can be there and physically they can be there with some supports like personal care, uh, like meals, like transportation. So any, any um, this, this uh, whole continuum of, of healthcare personnel um, are really, you know, if you move the, the leg on one, uh, if you move the supports in one and push uh, for and uh, incentivize recruitment and retention in one area, you're going to create an imbalance in other areas. And we're already feeling that and, and anticipate it will only get worse. Yeah, Minister Phillips also talked, as you, as you just did, about the, the real importance over the long term to establish that continuum of care with, with home and community care services at a foundation. I mean, recognizing that there are only 80,000 people at any one time living in, in long-term care homes and that the, the amount of people receiving care in the community far, far exceeds that. I, I guess the question is, how... How does the government start to take a more holistic and comprehensive view of the health human resource requirements of the health system as a whole? You must have thought a lot about that. You described you described the home and community sector as almost a, a feeder system for people to go into long-term care at the moment, where they can get more, more stable hours, higher pay, in some cases, better benefits. How if the future of our seniors care system in particular is going to rest on a strong foundation of home and community care, how does the government shift to an approach that, that recognizes the need for integrated planning and health human resources? Yeah, it is an excellent, excellent question. And, and just to, to support your comment, Dan, about a feeder system, um, certainly we um, were really um, not on, uh, surprised to see the information that came out of of uh, the Canadian Institute on Health Information that said that 8% of newly admitted residents to long-term care could have been kept at home. So based on that number, that would be over 8,000 Ontarians that could be supported from a wait list of long, for long-term care, which I believe is somewhere upwards of 40,000 people right now waiting for, for long-term care. They could be supported in the community. So to, to answer your question, um, you know, we, we think that the, the way to move forward on this has got to be around uh, a provincial approach to HHR planning and not a silo by silo, sector by sector approach. And certainly um, uh, just, again, supporting that, even the Long-Term Care Commission, when it looked at um, how it was going to provide recommendations to long-term care, did say that it's important that you not destabilize the home and community care sector as you're starting to um, shore up the long-term care system. So I think we need to have, you know, full engagement of, of all the sectors so that we can all be at the table talking about this planning um, so that we can move for towards uh, a better equilibrium. I think there are ways that we can work better together if we have those conversations, but certainly the planning, um, the hundreds of lessons that we've learned over this last 20 months uh, through the pandemic, um, we need to build on that learning um, in terms of our HHR, 
um, and, and leverage it in order to be able to retain and, and recruit for the future. I think that will be important, particularly as we understand that we are dealing with uh, burnout and, and, um, uh, and healthcare personnel leaving in droves from all aspects of the healthcare system right now. So I really believe that that engagement and particularly uh, for our sector and home and community care will just really help strengthen that system um, as we start to move forward on it. It's, it's got to be a, a win-win for that. Let's talk a little bit about one of the, the big elephants in the room here, and that that is the uh, significant cost related to wage harmonization across the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's been well recognized in policymaking um, circles in the, in the province for maybe two decades uh, that to move towards a truly integrated system where where we have the right balance of resources and supports for people and you know the providers work uh, together effectively to provide that seamless experience for people we're going to need to have a, a, a system where there's integrated health human resource planning and a greater degree of wage harmonization when the Ontario governments looked at it in the past. I think there's been a bit of sticker shock. You know, they've looked at um, places like British Columbia, where they have where they have moved towards uh, wage harmonization across the sector, and they have much more effectively integrated health uh, health system than Ontario has. Uh, but but it it would be at a cost of several billion dollars in Ontario over over the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you kind of think about that in terms of the the cost benefit analysis of of trying to move to a system where there is greater coherence in, in, in wage and benefits across the sector? Yeah, I, I think, I think the, the short answer is that we're going to pay for this one way or the other. And, you, and you're quite correct that uh, we didn't get to this disparity overnight. It has been decades in the making, and it hasn't been for lack of trying to bring attention to the issues of parity over the last you know, 10, 20 years um, that we have found ourselves in this position. Um, I think, you know, um, we have proposed in some of our pre-budget work in the past that government can take some steps forward on the issues of, of wage parity and, and compensation um, in, in smaller steps as opposed to one fell step. You know, we know that uh, we're just coming out of a um, a period of time that where we've had to invest a lot in the health and safety of our of our province around COVID. And so we need to work with the providers and work with um, work with frontline staff to move towards uh, a parity situation and, and, and take the time that we need to to do this. Um, at, I think at this point in our in our um, recovery period from from COVID that that kind of this kind of investment will be um, essential. It's not something that we can avoid. We'll pay for it one way or the other. And what we don't want to see is paying for it um, from the morbidity and mortality of, of individuals that we serve across the province because of the lack of qualified health personnel. Um, the cost uh, to help move forward on at least the, the lowest cost um, sector um, we've, we've shown can be uh, achievable. Um, we've recently put in um, a pre-budget request this year for um, $600 million that would help bring parity for frontline personnel like PSWs and nursing with long-term care um, at a price tag of 
around $600 million. Still sounds like a lot of money, but uh, still very minor when you think about the overall costs that we've already invested in the system um, in terms of compensation. So I think, I think it has to be uh, undertaken uh, slowly and measured and with full engagement of all sectors. Maybe you haven't uh, you haven't gotten to this point yet, but you're, you're an, you, you lead an advocacy organization on behalf of your members. There's a there's a provincial election that's coming up next year. You've you've got a you've got a budget ask in uh, for this six hundred million dollars. As if you as you think four or five years out, what are the kinds of directional changes you'd be looking for um, to see over that longer term period, over a five year period, when it comes to health human resources? We're, we're very supportive of the directions around looking at better integrated care, um, particularly at the local level with the teams. And I think, again, back to HHR, the, the success of Ontario health teams or any integrated models that we might be in, uh, embarking on over the future are really going to be contingent on um, strong uh, health workforce. And um, we, we can't have integration of services uh, where we have these glaring compensation issues across the board from from sector to sector. So I think that's going to have to be a huge priority for government. Um, And I think, you know, just the experience of 20 months of working through COVID and working through what have been some really significant challenges for uh, frontline staff on on some of the sort of very basic policies, um, I think we've really learned that consistency across healthcare systems, all healthcare systems, acute care, long-term care, and home, com- home and community care is really important. We're facing that right now with the vaccine, um, mandatory vaccine policy. We're, you know, we, we will face this in other ways. And so I think the government has got to turn its head to uh, working with healthcare uh, personnel much more directly to be able to solve these really sticky problems as we move forward um, and, and trying to integrate services for, for Ontarians in a better way. At, at the outset of your comments, you, you talked about volunteers as really a linchpin mm-hmm. in the home and community support sector as well, and that they, the volunteerism has been so impacted by the pandemic. Uh, what's, what's your kind of thinking about how we reignite and re, re-engage volunteers over the next number of years, too, as we come out of the pandemic? And, and what can the government do to support that? Yeah, I think it's been a really important issue. And uh, again, you know, how, lesson learned from, from the pandemic where it shows um, areas of, of um of need for improvement. I think, you know, volunteers uh, going forward will we'll, we'll reshape how we, how we look at volunteers. We have over, you know, traditionally really leaned heavily on seniors helping seniors. And I think it's still an important component of volunteerism. Um, but I think we also need to recognize that, um, you know, uh, that, that the public health measures that we've had to put in place to protect people in general also apply across the board to all of our volunteers. Um, We've certainly seen a lot of our home and community care organizations really pivot uh, in terms of their volunteers um, sort of broadening out 
um, the types of volunteers that come into to work in, in home and community care, the time, the types of um, opportunities that they give volunteers to participate in and, and care for uh, individuals in, in, in different programs has really changed to provide more protection and more uh, safety uh, for individuals. So I think you know, uh, going forward, looking at volunteers, um, it's going to be cer- certainly been has been shaped differently. Um, I think there's lots of um, we've seen a lot of opportunities that have come up, um, not just for volunteers, but also for frontline staff on virtual and digital opportunities. Um, and, and some of the some of the really innovative things that have happened in home and community care have not also have not even needed technology. Um, so we think about seniors isolation. Um, there are many, many of our organizations have adopted programs like porch visits and things that are just community-based caring for neighbors approaches um, to supporting community. And, uh, and so that's kind of what our sector does best. And uh, I think going forward, hopefully, um, government will see, it, see the light to be able to help and support the sector to stay um, uh, whole as it, as it, uh, it finds its way um, out of, into recovery. We haven't talked yet about the the role of the federal government, and obviously you're you're a provincial association. But uh, Premier Ford uh, a couple of days ago made the link very clearly to the federal government's role in supporting um, address uh, addressing the broader labor market challenges in Ontario and the role that the federal government could play in really um, expediting and in increasing immigration levels. Um, have you does the OCSA have a position on not just on on immigration, but more broadly on what what it would be looking for from the federal government, uh, particularly as we look forward to the potential for additional investment um, in the healthcare system. There's been discussion about a a, a, a next healthcare accord. Um, what would you uh, what would ideally the federal the role of the federal government be? Um, I think it would be important, Dan, really to hear the federal government also talking about how critically important home and community care is to the uh, to the overall healthcare system as you know it's you know home community care is not um, not covered under the Canada Health Act and so it is left at the province at the province level to determine uh, priorities setting and and funding etc but um, as we're as you know the next accord comes up perhaps looking at tying some of the transfer payment to a strong focus on home and community care, as has been done in the past, would certainly help um, the provinces um, in the myriad of, of, of priorities that they all have to contend with in healthcare to see um, and to help prioritize uh, home and community care as one, as one of the strong tenets of, of the healthcare system. So I think I think that certainly would would uh, help our case um, hearing about it and and also you know the strength in, in talking about health systems across Canada from province to province, um, looking at the sort of best um, practices that come out of every province around um, uh, the strength in their in their services to be able to see home and community care as a priority would be very helpful. Yeah, I found it interesting during the campaign that the that the prime minister uh, personally made the uh, commitment to, if if reelected, uh, to train and fund twenty five thousand new personal support workers with a minimum wage of at least twenty five dollars an hour. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out. And I, 
I'm, I'm sure you would probably have some advice for the federal government as they consider how to how to put those personal support workers into the system in a in a in a useful way. Absolutely. I mean, the 25,000 PSWs, again, even added to what uh, Ontario has already announced around uh, recruitment of PSWs, we really need to look at, uh, a, a, you know, a sector a health system wide approach to recruitment retention and not just focus on problems and, and look at what the future is going to need. Uh, and that will include a really robust home and community care sector. Well, um, Deborah, we've covered quite a quite a broad range of, of subjects today. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to you want to highlight before we wrap up? I think I think um, uh, you know just going forward, there's there's so many opportunities, Dan. I think um, to really uh, have benefit from uh, all of uh, what we've learned over the last uh, short while and um, with the with the pandemic and. You know, from a from the perspective of this sector, and I've been in it for you know a, a long time. Um, I think you know when we go through a crisis like uh, COVID pandemic, we sometimes lose focus on on um, sort of the broader uh, achievements we want to get in healthcare system. Health is not only about the absence of disease, but it's also about a, a really good integration of of social services that really help keep people independent and out of the healthcare system. And um, I think from that perspective, um, we just need to re-energize our, our, our attention to um, sectors like ours to be able to really leverage the, the, the knowledge and the expertise that are um, that's within the sector and um, try and embed it in what we're doing in terms of the transformation. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful um, that we can find our way on that. Well put. Um, I just wanted to thank you very much for for joining us today, and, and thank you for the work that you and your and your members have been doing in very trying circumstances over the past twenty months. Um, as you as you referenced at the outset, it's been it's been hard for everyone working in the in in the healthcare system, um, but you folks have dealt with some pretty um, specific and unique challenges, and wish you the best of luck as we emerge from the pandemic. Thanks again, Dan, for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.